Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Distributism is a political and economic theory under which the means of production would be redistributed to as many people as possible as part of an effort to decentralize power to the greatest extent possible and to protect the rights of smaller political and economic units against the encroachments of both central government and big business. While distributists and free market advocates can find some common ground, there remain significant differences between the two groups. On February 18, 2016, the Acton Institute hosted a debate on the topic of distributism. Arguing in favor of distributism was Joseph Pierce, who at the time was writer-in-residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee, and the director of the college's Center for Faith and Culture. Currently, Pierce is director of book publishing at the Augustan Institute and editor of the St. Austin Review. On the side of free markets was Jay Richards, assistant research professor in the Bush School of Business and the academic content lead for the Tucson Project at the Catholic University of America. Acton Institute president and co-founder, Reverend Robert Sirico, served as the moderator of the discussion. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Vault on our website at acton.org slash actonvault. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Joseph Pierce is an indefatigable writer of distinction who has produced a wide range of commentary from Shakespeare to Oscar Wilde to Tolkien. Most pertinent to this evening's conversation is his Small is Beautiful, which will be available in good capitalist fashion for sale, (laughs) which we hope to make abundant profits on (laughs) at your expense. Uh, Small is beautiful, which is Mr. Pierce's uh, homage to E.F. Schumacher's work of a similar name. Mr. Pierce is currently writer in residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee, and is the director of the college's Center for Faith and Culture. Jay Richards, of course, is no stranger to an Acton audience, having served on our senior staff and being a regular lecturer at our various events. Dr. Richards is presently assistant research professor at the School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America. He's also a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute and the executive editor of The Stream. His most pertinent text related to our conversation this evening is Money, Greed, and God, which coincidentally enough is also for sale at the end of this lecture. We are going to begin with two presentations and they will then respond to each other and then Uh, have a a little dialogue here, and then we'll open it up for your questions and conversation uh, in the course of the evening. Dr. Richards, you're up first. Thank you, 
great to be with you. I just want to stop and check the mic. Am I on? All right. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, it's so thankful to Joseph Pierce. We've interacted by email and online, but never actually met in person. Turns out my daughter actually uh, watched a lecture of his quite, quite recently. So it's just wonderful to be here. Thank you uh, to the Acton Institute and Father Sirico for putting this on. So what I want to do is, uh, if I do nothing else, make a few very important distinctions that I think are often missed when Christians, and in particular when Catholics, talk about economics. The difficulty of economics is that it's actually a bundle of distinct and related things all bundled up together, and we tend not to distinguish these things. And I think there, almost any economic discussion is going to involve four things. The first is an empirical question. You could think of this as the what. That is, what is economic reality like? Think of the economic realm as the social reality in which human beings buy and sell and exchange goods and services and information, and the things we discover about that realm. Just like you can imagine a chemist studying the realm of chemistry. Now, obviously, e economics in the economic realm is not like the chemical realm, but it's a reality. And realities that God has created have their own principles and rules that can be discovered. So there's the empirical question. Something like if you say, what would happen if we were to fix the price of gasoline below its market price? What would happen? That's an empirical question. The second is the theoretical question. The theoretical question, that is, I mean, theoretical in economics. So if the empirical question is what, the theoretical question is why. So this is a super easy example. So I'll, I'll just sort of, most of you can guess how this goes, but if you fix the price of gasoline below the market price, what's going to happen? You're going to end up with a shortage, right? And now you'd have a the theoretical explanation for why that is having to do with the function of prices and supply and demand, the way prices function in a context of scarcity and those sorts of things. So notice we've got an empirical and a the theoretical question. Third, the ethical question, right? Very often economists will give the impression that economics is just simply a science in some positivistic or neutral sense. But almost always when we're talking about economics, and I would dare to say tonight the reason you're here is not because of your interest in those empirical questions. It's because of your interest in those ethical questions. And so the ethical question is the what ought we to do, right? So there's the empirical question, what will happen? Why does it happen? What ought we to do? And then there's a fourth sort of lagger, I don't know quite how to articulate this, but this is essentially the ideological question. There's a difference between asking which type of system with certain types of institutions and rules and cultures would do the best for allowing human flourishing and re reducing uh, uh, widespread poverty, and who articulates that the best? So a defense of the free market or a free enterprise is not the same as a defense, say, of Ayn Rand's particular philosophy. Uh, and I hope that's the case because I spent years actually criticizing Rand. These are two different things, just as there are facts of biology that are distinct from Charles Darwin's theory of biological complexity, right? Those are two different things. And so whatever you think of the adequacy of Darwinism, there's still going to be things that we presume to be true about the biological world. So there's the empirical, the theoretical, the ethical, and then the kind of philosophical or ideological. And very often we have these types of discussions. What often happens is that people sort of square off ideology against ideology, or presumed ideology against presumed ideology. But I think that really the more pertinent question, since we're interested in human beings and we're interested in the ethical question, is simply to say, what system, based upon what we actually know, that is what we observe uh, from the empirical data, 
and from our historical knowledge, does the best job of doing the kinds of things you'd want an economic system to do. Now, don't expect an economic system to solve everything. Don't expect it necessarily to make people virtuous. Ideally, we wouldn't want it to make people vicious. But what do we want an economic system to do? Well, we'd like it to distribute goods and services and information well. We'd like it to be open to underlying realities of supply and demand so that prices don't lie about what those realities are. We'd like it to allow people to um, uh, lift themselves out of poverty, uh, to at least in part have some kind of self-determination with their lives, where they live, what they do, to emerge from absolute poverty and to create value for themselves and others. Right? Now, so that, that's, that's, a, that's a mixed question, isn't it? But it's essentially a question of the system, not a particular ideology. And in fact, I think very often those who defend what I would argue is the best of the live alternatives, free enterprise or free markets, do a very bad job of actually defending it because they have an inadequate anthropology and inadequate philosophy. And so Rand is the sort of favorite uh, uh, person to whip on this because she has such a terrible anthropology. She was right on certain questions and she was on the right side of certain questions, but often for the wrong reason. So let's just run through this. What would the, the sort of empirical things that we would want to take account of be? Good news is, when you're talking about the empirical details of economics, it has almost nothing to do with those things you learned about in macroeconomics. Right? I don't know how many of you had that intro class in macro. That's actually designed to keep you from studying economics any further. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about what's often called microeconomics. But a lot of it just simply has to do with really basic things. Things like incentives matter. Supply and demand have a well-understood relationship with each other. Prices do certain things and function in certain ways. Economic value is a particular thing. And economic value is different from, say, the labor theory of value that was widely held until the early 20th century. The effects of specialization and division of labor. The effects of free trade and open trade and the reduction of tariffs. These are the kinds of empirical questions that we can actually get some purchase on. And that's the good news when we're talking about economics. It's not like things haven't been tried. We're having this conversation in, say, 1910, there were a lot of things that hadn't been tried. In fact, we didn't actually know the effects of nationalization of industry really clearly until the Soviet Union tried it and discovered, oh, guess what? It's an absolute disaster. Most economic policy has actually been tried somewhere. So we have actual empirical content that I think allows us to rule out a lot of things that might sound good, might sound uh, uh, morally intuitive and persuasive and appealing, but that we know don't actually do what we think they're going to do when we look at the realities. What do we know? We, we understand the nature of a free exchange. Too many economic discussions don't actually recognize that. If you go into a grocery store and you buy something freely, that only happens if you wanted the groceries more than you wanted the money, and the grocer wanted the money more than he wanted the groceries. It's the nature of a free exchange. The role of the rule of law. You don't get wide sort of arena for that type of free exchange without a rule of law in which people aren't allowed to kill each other and steal from each other and defraud each other. So this idea that you're gonna get a free market, if everybody just gets to do what they wanna do, that's not how it works. That's not a free market, that's anarchy. If you wanna know what that look, looks like, read Lord of the Flies by William Golding, right? Anarchy is where the powerful lord it over and enslave the weak. That's not a free market and that's not for enterprise. So in light of those things, I would say in light of the kind of empirical realities, in light of the key 
theoretical insights that aren't dependent upon anything in the 20th century, but I think became most clear in the 20th century, we can ask ourselves a question. What kind of society ought we to have for doing the kinds of things we would want an economy to do? We'd want it to accommodate known economic truths. That's absolutely crucial. Just as you would want an aeronautical engineer at Boeing to accommodate known truths of physics, you want an economic system to accommodate known economic truths. And I would argue if you actually look at the empirical details, compare the various states of the 200 or so countries on which we have data, currently what you'll find is they have, the ones that do well have certain things in common. This is what they have in common. Rule of law, well-established and well-elaborated property rights and titling, stable money, an open environment for starting and growing businesses, a limited and representative government that recognizes key civil institutions such as family and church that are outside the market and are outside the state. So an independent civil society in which the population enjoys widespread religious and economic freedom, including free trade. This is what we mean by free markets or free enterprise. Now I could tell you about the index of economic freedom, but just Google it for yourself. What you'll notice is that Hong Kong is at the top, North Korea is at the bottom. The index of economic freedom has been happening for about 20 years. It's essentially a study of all the countries for which we have data. And if you just look at the beginning and the end, it sort of tells you everything you need to know. Hong Kong's at the top, North Korea is at the bottom. Hong Kong has the most economic freedom, North Korea has the least. What's the correlation that's obvious there? It's a very direct correlation between rule of law and economic freedom and widespread prosperity for a population. Not absolute economic equality, but a virtual eradication of absolute poverty. But let's just talk about the last 15 years. It's easy to talk about success stories, places like Hong Kong and the United States and the UK. In the last 15 years, according to the UN, absolute poverty has been cut in half globally. Absolute poverty is the type of poverty in which you don't have enough to eat, you don't have shelter, you don't have basic access to healthcare. Cut in half. It's the greatest economic story perhaps in history. And we know how it's happened. It hasn't happened, alas, from charity or from well-meaning policies. It's happened as the result of the growth of trade and innovation and entrepreneurship and enterprise. So if you want that for a country and for an economy, you're not going to get any, a utopia, but of the live alternatives, free enterprise is the way to go. Thank you very much. Good evening. As this is timed strictly to 10 minutes, I'm going to just read this, but obviously I'll be ad-libbing the rest of the evening, so make the questions interesting. I'd like to thank Father Sirico and the folks of the Acton Institute for inviting me to this debate with Mr. Jay Richards on tonight's topic of distributism versus free markets. In any discussion, it's always good to define our terms. I shall proceed, therefore, by defining what I understand to be distributism, for which I will be arguing. I do not propose in this brief introduction to address the topic of free markets, leaving Mr. Richards to do this in his own introduction. I will then address his understanding of the freedom of the market in my response to him. 
so to a definition of distributism. It is important, first and foremost, to see distributism as a derivative of the principle of subsidiarity, which holds that political, economic, and social problems are resolved best and most justly when dealt with at the most immediate level consistent with their solution. Distributists draw the vital connection between the freedom of labor and its relationship with the other factors of production, that is land, capital, and the entrepreneurial spirit. The more that labor is divorced from the other factors of production, the more it is enslaved to the, wills of, the will of powers beyond its control. In an ideal world, every man would own the land on which and the tools with which he worked. In an ideal world, he would control his own destiny by having control over the means to his livelihood. This is the most important economic freedom, the freedom beside which all other economic freedoms are relatively trivial. If a man has this freedom, he will not so easily succumb to encroachments upon his other freedoms. I am, however, a realist. We do not live in an ideal world, and the ideal, in the absolute sense, is unattainable. Yet, as a Christian, I believe we are called to strive for perfection. We are called to imitate Christ, even if we cannot be perfect, as Christ is perfect. And what is true of man in his relationship with God is true of man in his relationship with his neighbor. That is, we are called to strive towards a better and more just society, even if it will never be perfect. Therefore, in practical terms, every policy or every practice that leads to a reuniting of man with the land and capital on which he depends for his sustenance is a step in the right direction. Every policy or practice that puts him more at the mercy of those who control the land and the capital on which he depends and therefore who controlled his labor also, is a step in the wrong direction. Practical politics is about moving in the right direction, however slowly. In practical terms, the following would all be distributive solutions to common problems. The creation of a favorable climate for the establishment and subsequent thriving of small businesses. A climate that discourages mergers, takeovers, and monopolies. An economy that allows for the breakup of monopolies or larger companies into smaller businesses. The establishment and encouragement of producers' cooperatives. The privatization of nationalized industries. The return of uh, real political power closer to the family by decentralizing power from central government to local government, from big government to small government. All these are practical examples of what might be called applied distributism. As the foregoing practical examples would suggest, distributism, subsidiarity, is not an esoteric ideal without any practical applicability in everyday political and economic life. On the contrary, it is at the heart of politics and economics. In all politics and economics, there is the tendency for power to become centralized into the hands of fewer and fewer people. Subsidiarity can be seen as the antidote to this centralization. 
That is, it is the principle at the heart of the forces of decentralization. The principle that demands the rights and protection of smaller political and economic units, including, of course, the family, against the encroachments of central government and big business. Distributism is the only alternative to proletarianism, the latter of which comes in two forms. One of which is sometimes called, to make the whole thing a bit more controversial, capitalism, a word I usually try to avoid using for reasons that maybe I'll discuss later. And the other is sometimes called socialism. Socialism is strikingly similar in practice to capitalism insofar as both systems place the means of production into the hands of a privileged few at the expense of the proletarianized masses. Whereas capitalism, or what might more fruitfully be called economic proletarianism, centralizes the ownership of land and capital into the hands of a small number of powerful businessmen. Socialism centralizes or collectivizes it into the hands of a small number of powerful politicians. In both cases, the vast majority of ordinary people remain without sufficient land or capital and are therefore proletarianized. As such, the choice between capitalism and socialism is the choice between economic proletarianism and political proletarianism. There's a choice between being ruled by big business or big brother. A choice between Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Or between Tweedledum and Tweedledumer. The real irony is that these two forms of proletarianism, economic and political, capitalist and socialist, are not going to fight to the death, which we once thought, with one or other ultimately emerging triumphant, but are melding into a single politico-economic proletarianism in which big business and big brother reach a mutually agreeable modus operandi. Look, for instance, at the relationship between global corporations and communist China, or the fact that the Confederation of British Industry has always supported the Socialist European Union. This understanding between big business and big government at the expense of the perennially powerless majority will herald what Belloc calls the servile state, which we might prefer to call the welfare state. The whole of human society, politically, economically and culturally, is being remoulded by powerful international and transnational bodies and networks in order to pursue and actualize the globalist agenda. This remoulding and remodeling of human society is being pursued without a democratic mandate and without the interests of the peoples of the world in mind. It is being pursued by the richest and most powerful in the world to serve their own interests, riding roughshod over the interests of the vast majority of mankind. The system being put in place by the globalists is nothing less than the largest plutocracy in human history. Indeed, it's ironic that the global plutocrats have the same agenda of social engineering as do the socialists. It is, no it is no coincidence that Bill Gates and Barack Obama share essentially the same views on birth control, eugenics, and abortion, or that they are both pursuing the agenda of the culture of death with the same proselytizing zeal. 
Instead of government becoming bigger and ultimately global, moving further and further away from the ordinary people, it is theoretically meant to serve, we need the reinvigoration of small government and the devolving of power away from central government, thereby bringing government closer to the people. This is showing proper respect for the dignity of the human person and the political freedom that this dignity demands. Instead of economic structures becoming bigger and ultimately global, with globalised corporate management moving further and further away from individual employees, we need the revitalisation of small business. This is showing proper respect for the dignity of the human person and the economic freedom that this dignity demands. Furthermore, the whole notion of a global problem requiring a global solution is rooted in a false logic. Effectively, it is saying that because bigness causes problems, we need even more bigness to solve them. This is the error of both socialism and corporate globalism. The problems caused by big government and big business are not solved by making the cause of the problem bigger. The very idea that any form of global government could be democratic in any meaningful sense is preposterous. The centralization of more and more power into fewer and fewer hands is not democratic. Global government will be tyrannical. Make no mistake about it. Globalism necessitates the destruction of freedom and must therefore be opposed by all those who value human liberty. We must combat the centralist tendency of globalism by doing all that we can to restore the decentralist tendency of localism. In practical terms, this means that we must resist the surrender of national sovereignty to globalist entities. It also means that within nations, we should work towards the reinvigoration, reinvigoration of local and regional government. In terms of economics, we should understand that every dollar that we spend is an economic vote and a moral act that will bring globalism to power if we spend our money on globalist products, but will help restore healthy local economies if we spend our money on local products. The, environment, the environmentalist mantra, think globally, act locally, is true insofar that globalism is so unthinkably evil, we have to resist it where we can, which is where we are, on our own doorsteps and with our own pocketbooks. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. An impassioned critique of uh, globalism. Fortunately, I'm not defending that. In fact, I hate it. So um, I'll try to focus on, uh, we were asked to both sort of give a statement and then respond. Uh, and so I think the crucial thing, Joe said a few things. I, I want to try to just respond specifically to some of the things he said, because um, I, my, my primary critique of distributism is that it confuses uh, an aspiration with an actual set of policies. And when you actually look at the policies, they usually contradict the aspiration and would end up, if actually implemented, doing exactly the opposite of what you'd want to do. So Hillary Belloc, for instance, uh, who's, I think, probably the most sort of articulate defender of this, Belloc and, and Chesterton uh, in the early 20th century, developed this idea of distributism. And, and uh, uh, Joseph mentioned Belloc, so I'll mention him, his, his, his book, Servile State, his essay, on the restoration of, of property. If you read it, hold the servile state and read it 
alongside the Communist Manifesto. Now, I'm not, don't think I'm going to tell you Belloc's a Marxist. That's not, that's not the lesson. Read them alongside each other. Read their understanding of labor and capital. What you'll discover is that they have the, exactly the same view. It's called the labor theory of value. The idea is that the economic value of something uh, has to do with the amount of labor that's put into it. So the capital essentially exploits the worker, extracts value from the worker. As a result of that, both Marx and Belloc and their writings predicted that as capital-intensive industry grew, that is, as equipment and uh, machinery and factories grew, the wages of workers would go down. In fact, Belloc at one point predicted mass famine and starvation in capitalist countries. Now, why would you say that? Well, you'd say that if you thought the value of the thing was simply the labor, or primarily the labor, and the capital, the equipment, was somehow extracting value from the worker. What actually happened? When, when Marx and Engels were writing the Communist Manifesto in 1848 and making the same prediction that Belloc made several decades later, the wages of workers in those factories was going up rather than down. Why? Because capital increases the value of labor. That's why the same labor, the same unskilled labor of a housekeeper in Seattle will make vastly more money than a housekeeper in Quito, Ecuador. Same labor, different capital context. So it's the, the, the simple understanding of the relation uh, of labor and capital is just simply backwards. It's empirically false. It leads to false predictions. And this is why it's almost impossible to find an economist that would propose this. You all know this. The value of your labor goes up when you use equipment than when, it, when you don't have it. Now, it's nice if you own the equipment, but that doesn't mean the value of your labor doesn't go up as a result of it. So that's the first key point, is that a great deal of the detailed analysis of the relationship between labor and value, and that Joe sort of spoke in some tones, is based on a known and deeply flawed understanding of the relationship of these two, of these two things. The second is uh, the idea that smallness and that small business is itself intrinsically preferable. Small business is terrific. In fact, if you look at the origin of new jobs, most new jobs that are created are created by small business. But if you had a policy, if you actually implemented the policies that Joe has proposed, which more or less recapitulate what Belloc proposed, you have a series of subsidies and punitive taxes and policies that prevent companies from getting above a certain size. Now, what would happen here? So imagine you're a successful software company. You get to a certain size. You hire more employees. You get successful because you serve your customers better than your competitors. And then you get to a certain size, and the federal government extracts a bunch of your wealth. They take the capital that you have focused and channeled into valuable ends and destroy it. So you're going to extract and destroy the entrepreneurial knowledge, and you're going to punish the companies that succeed. If this were actually implemented, it's sort of the greatest single policy that would destroy domestic industry imaginable. You'd have massive capital flight, huge incentives to have companies leave the shores rather than to be here. So we don't want to punish the companies that succeed. And so it's very important that when we have sort of aspirations that we might like and that might sound nice, that we actually say, okay, now wait, what would actually happen if we implemented this? And then finally, this, this question of the nature of productive property. I think this is actually a key insight uh, of distributism, is that it's very important that productive property be widely distributed. But what is productive property? If you look at the Fortune 500, I did this last night, virtually none have anything to do with land. 
There was a time in which land was the primary source of wealth and wealth creation. It's not anymore. It's a time when hard industry was. We now live in a, sort of the third industrial era in which mind and expertise and knowledge and experience matter. And that's the kind of capital that we want to be widely distributed. Thank you very much. Good, it's heating up. That's good. <laughs> of course, one rhetorical device which both of us, I'm sure, are guilty of, and it's too easy to do, is to set up straw men and then knock them down. Um, so, uh, well, because at the beginning it was said that, you know, that, uh, that Jay said he does not endorse globalism, so it's irrelevant. I would argue that uh, the sort of uh, free market laissez-faire capitalism leads to the globalism. That's a discussion we should con con continue here. Um, but certainly I had no intention at all of defending Hilaire Belloc's uh, uh, um, view of economics in that sense. The Servile State, two things about it we need to know very quickly. One, it was written uh, to convince socialists that socialism is wrong, okay? So, he's not, so his audience is important, right? Socialism on the rise, it was the, just, just before World War I, and he's trying to show them their, their, their solution is uh, a nonsensical one. So the rhetoric he uses is anti-capitalist, and he's using the terminology that they use. So that's one thing I would say there. The other thing about price and value here is that I would just can't resist using the phrase of uh, Oscar Wilde. That a cynic is one of those, the price of everything and the value of nothing. Now, Jay is not a cynic. But there's a big difference between price and value. But it's not necessarily the same thing. Something can, can, can have a price now on the market that may have a harmful consequence in the future. The market is, by its nature, myopic. Now, I just want to spend a, the next is talking about some practical distributism, because you talk about aspirations and the understanding that we don't know what we're talking about. We just aspire to things. Um, so I want to give a couple of examples. Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s, in a brilliant political move, which won her the next election, gave the British working class the right to buy their homes that were owned by local government. She did it by selling it to them dirt cheap, well below the market value, the price. And she did it for various reasons. One was Machiavellian, because once they become homeowners, they become bourgeois, and they'll vote for the Tories, which they did. It was brilliant. But it was also a distributist move, because it's good for people to own the house in which they live, and for the vast majority of the working class in the United Kingdom, it would never have happened without a visionary like Margaret Thatcher, if you like, breaking the free market rules to make it work. I'm not, I don't believe in the, the federal government having lots of power. I, I should be clear from what I've said. But let me give you some practical examples. My favorite subject, craft ale. <laughs> in the UK, in the 1970s, there's a chapter in my book, Small is Still Beautiful, called Small Beer, about this. Four men started the campaign for real ale because the, the four big brewers had basically wrapped up the market producing really awful beer. So the campaign for real ale was founded, and they had, within two or three years, had 30,000 members. But these small breweries that were starting, many of them were camera members, could not get their products on the market because the same big brewers also owned the pubs. And the pubs were only allowed to sell the big breweries brew. 
Now, an individual member of parliament bringing in a private member's bill got something passed which um, allowed landlords of pubs, even if the pub was owned by the big, big brewers, to have a guest ale. And that allowed the small brewers access to the market. It's a perfect example of prudent and wise change of law leading to small businesses getting a foothold in the market that they've been excluded from by big brewers producing bad beer. Quality is another issue. In the US, I was last week, I was in St. Paul, Minnesota, also another place where craft brews growing everywhere. There's civilization yet. <laughs> and they, put, they changed the law locally. So this is local law, local government, to allow these new craft brewers to have a tap room in the brewery. And this, of course, allowed them immediate, instant, local access to the market. Made a huge impact on the economic viability of small brewers. Again, a prudential change in the law locally. So all I'm really talking about is we need to have prudential laws never succumbing to big government. So the challenge we have the challenge we have is ways that we can allow small businesses to compete in an unequal playing field where the economies are scouring, the big boys get it all their own way without succumbing to big government. Thank you. Now, I know you, you both want to uh, go back and forth, and we want you to do that. Let me, let me frame some questions for the both of you. And uh, uh, I'm going to resist the temptation to be uh, lopsided. I'm going to try and ask you as many. I'm going to try. Uh, it's hard. Um, but uh, let, let me begin by asking you both to respond to this question. What did you find in this presentation, or, or more generally, uh, in your own reading, what do you find most challenging to your own uh, presuppositions, to your own positions, in the um, presentation of your interlocutor? What do you find most uh, tempting or most satisfying or most explanatory in what, the others? What would I find most explanatory? Either in what Joseph has said or in the literature distributed. What, what do you find uh, oh, yeah. most challenging or most attractive? I, the thing by far that I find the most attractive is the defense of the family and of the importance of property. And in fact, I think it's a key insight. There are economists now that are talking new institutional uh, economics, and uh, there, there's some fields that are focusing on these non-market institutions. But if you, you, know, you read Adam Smith, it's, it's, you know, it's lots of intellectuals, many of whom didn't actually have kids. And so guess what? They didn't even think about families. Uh, and it's a huge blind spot, I think, in economics as a discipline. And so I think that the, the emphasis on the dignity of the human person and the dignity and the fundamental reality, social reality of the family. I think, frankly, uh, for Christians in general and Catholics in particular, that is a point we have to pound home. It's, it's a principle of Catholic social teaching. It's also a principle of natural reason, as those, these principles are supposed to be. And so I think uh, that's the, probably the most important thing uh, and the most valuable thing I, I see in it. I do also, 
I do not like uh, what I would call cronyism. Uh, I do not like the, the collusion of certain large economic actors. Uh, and it's, this isn't true everywhere. It's not so true in the tech sector at the moment. It's true in the financial sector in the US, in which we have large economic actors working in cahoots with federal regulators. And people think, well, big business, would they want a free market. No, they don't. They, what they want is to be able to write the regulations to keep the, the small upstarts from getting in. That's what they actually want. I live in Washington, D.C., so trust me on this. This is how it works. Um, and it drives me crazy. And Belloc saw that in the servile state, that that was a problem. I just think he misdiagnosed exactly how to, to deal with it. But that kind of collusion, whatever you want to call it, I would call it cronyism or corporatism or something. I think it's a serious problem. I think distributists point to it and recognize that it's a real problem. Joseph? Yeah, I think the one thing I want to get clear, um, and I think it comes out in uh, the, the free market arguments, and it came out in, in, in Jay's uh, uh, discussion, uh, was that uh, I like the fact that the that, that free marketeers, for want of a better word, um, uh, distrust big government. Uh, I like the fact, if you like, there's a spectrum, and at one end of the spectrum is Stalinism, the command economy, which only a madman believes in. All right, and the right, the other extreme uh, is anarchy, where there's no law whatsoever. And as, again, Oscar Wilde, keep quoting Oscar Wilde here. So I quote, I quote only reputable uh, economists. <laughs> as Oscar Wilde said in one of his poems, anarchy, freedom's own Judas. Okay, that when you have that much freedom, you end up with tyranny. So the irony is, of course, but from this extreme, you, you end up with anarchy because it doesn't work. And this extreme, you have anarchy, you end up with tyranny because something has to replace the lawlessness. So what we need is something sensible in the spectrum. And I think I am with you that if this is in the middle, I'm over this side too. So I want distributism that does not involve big government. And I think that's the challenge that we need to be working together uh, to make happen. Yeah, you don't have to distribute your microphone. <laughs> we each individually have ours. Um, Actually, I have <laughs> yours, but thank you. Yes, it's only on loan. <laughs> Jay, you mentioned the importance of anthropology. Mm. So how do you square the individuality mm -hmm. and um, which, I mean, Rand, you, you rightly cite Rand as the kind of proponent of the radical individuals. How does private property come to serve social, the social good? I mean, honestly, Sam Gregg here at the Acton Institute, where is Sam? He didn't come tonight. He's he um, after him. Does he have an excuse? Oh, okay, yeah. he's in Ann Arbor. He's evangelizing. Uh, yes. He's <laughs> very good on this because there's a, in, in the Catholic social teaching, there's this idea of the universal destination of goods. And of course, what goods that we're talking about is a question. But the question is, under so kind of what arrangement does that best work? And if we actually look at the details, it's under a system of private property. Hernando de Soto, the Peruvian economist, is so good on this that uh, the, the key missing ingredient in the Caribbean and Central and South America, at least in many countries, it's not that they have don't have natural resources, it's not that they don't have intelligent people that are willing to work hard, it's that they don't have a titling system that allows them to capitalize the ground that they're on. And so private property it just turns out, I think, if you're just to be a utilitarian, you'd say, this is the system that we want. And the, di the difficulty is that those of us in the West 
we just kind of evolved this. There wasn't a, a star chamber in the 12th century in England somewhere that said, let's develop a really cool titling system and everybody will really, you know, everyone will own the plot of land that they're on. We didn't have the problem with housing uh, that they had in the UK because we had this. And how do you implement a system like that in a culture that doesn't have it? And that's, I think, a very, very difficult question. Uh, the other thing about private property is that you can, you can look at it simply empirically and say, okay, it has very positive economic effects. It's also another principle of Catholic social teaching. In fact, Leo XIII in Rerum Novarum, I think, makes a stronger claim about uh, the sort of almost the inviolability of, of private property in Rerum Novarum. It's stronger, actually, than Thomas Aquinas's view. Um, and so it's nice to know that this idea that we've discovered maybe ex post facto is very important economically is also a very important principle of Catholic social teaching and as Catholics. Catholics uh, have all the grounds in the world for defending it. Joseph, do you see no distinction between economic power and political power? Um, I would like to answer one thing said there and then we'll come to that if I can. We need to make sure that when we talk about private property that it has to be um, widely distributed private property because the point is the king could own all the property in England and say it's all mine because I'm the king. Well, and that's private property, but it's not widely distributed private property. So I think the challenge is how do we make private property more universally um, uh, inclusive so that more people can actually have it. And I think that's the challenge, not private property per se. We all agree on that. But how do you get more people to have it? And what was your question, Sorry, Father? Do you see no distinction between economic power and political power? I think that once uh, you get to the stage uh, where we're at now with the global economy, and you look at institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, um, then what you see is that the big power is largely economic power, which has national governments dancing to its tune. So I think that certainly when you get to the stage we're at now with this, this globalist world scenario, that uh, yes, economic and political power in bed together, the, the, the notion that they're in bed together, but as, uh, as entities, as institutions, the economy is different than the state. The economy is the power to persuade if you're, if you're in an economic uh, engagement, whereas the state uh, is the power to coerce. Well, I would, I would, I'm going to argue pay devil's advocate here because I have, don't have much time for either of them. Um, but of course, at least in, in theory, in a democracy, uh, the state does have to pay, pay lip service to the voters. Uh, so it can't just coerce because it will, the, the government will be d- dismissed. Um, so I think that it's not, the government is not just coercive, it does have to be responsive. Uh, and likewise, I think the free market um, is fine in theory, uh, in a vacuum, but in practice now, you know, that the market's always being massaged or manipulated or mangled by those with power. So uh, we are being coerced, if you like, into a, a, a global hegemony, which most of us don't want. Jay, what do you say about, um, uh, what, what you call it globalism, as opposed to globalization, would yeah, you make a distinction? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I would. I think they're completely different things. I mean, the IMF and the World, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the World Bank. Or these are not institutions of the market. These are government uh, chartered institutions. They were set up again, very well-meaning attempts to 
to, to lift developing world countries, basically to speed up development in the developing world. But let's not have them do what actually we know works to create development and prosperity. Let's have our governments give them their government's money. It's a disaster. And if any of you have seen Poverty Inc. or it hung around the Acton Institute, you already know that. And so uh, it's important. The World Bank and the International Monetary Fund are not market institutions, they're government institutions. Then there's this question of globalism, uh, which I would, I would center uh, uh, in the aspirations of the UN. And I actually, I agree with Joseph that this is a serious problem. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about the UN because I think they're generally toothless. Uh, if they had a standing army, I would be a little bit more worried. Um, but the globalization, as I would use it, is, I think is a generally a good thing. I think it's generally a good thing that hundreds of millions of Chinese peasants in Western China that were living barely subsistence existence 20 years ago are now entering into the Chinese middle class. I think that's a good thing. I think they benefit from it. I think we benefit from it. Uh, there are scads of empirical data about the, the, the value of wider scale trade between different peoples. It's just, I mean, it's as old as Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, division of labor and trade. That's generally beneficial. And I think we want to distinguish the kind of globalist ideology centered uh, in the UN from globalization. I mean, every, if any of you have a smartphone in your pocket, an Android or an iPhone, that thing was produced from technology in probably two dozen countries. There was, were probably 100 million people involved in the production of that technology. Thousands of individual technologies have to be in place for it to be so much as possible. Just one is the global positioning satellite system. Not coordinated by anyone. That is an effect of globalization and human cooperation and is overwhelmingly the product of the market and of economic realities rather than political realities. Political realities, the, the key feature of the state is its capacity to coerce. And so while we should worry, I think, about powerful economic actors, Microsoft doesn't have any tanks. <laughs> the federal government does. That's a key distinction. Can I address one or two of those yes, things? Yes. The last thing, first of all, that the, certainly the, uh, the Gates Foundation in, co in, in cahoots with uh, various other aid, aid institutions, as Michael Miller, by the way, uh, somebody here, um, sent me Michael Miller's talk he gave here last year. I listened to it over an hour long. There was not one single thing in that whole hour that I disagreed with. So let's get one thing clear there. Yes, good. But I would also say, however, that you all of those ideas- You are from the kingdom. No. All of those ideas were present in Small is Beautiful by E.F. Schumacher. It was E.F. Schumacher that came up with the idea of intermediate or appropriate technology and said that these, these solutions that, that Michael quite rightly crit critiqued uh, as, as being doing more harm than good were all critiqued by E.F. Schumacher 40 years ago. And E.F. Schumacher is essentially a distributist. So I mean, we're in agreement, so I don't think we have to do uh, on that. Um, but I would say that the Gates Foundation, uh, in, in cahoots with, with various other globalist entities, are not giving money, as Michael pointed out, unless the culture of death is adopted. Now, Bill Gates doesn't need tanks to coerce third world governments to adopt abortion and contraception and the culture of death. Um, but he needs, he needs the, um, the governments who are giving him access and who are benefiting from, right? Uh, see, the... the the thing that worries some people, uh, worries me, about distributism isn't the anti-government sentiment and the critiques of crony capitalism. 
But the thing that you have only alluded to rarely uh, and that distributors hold back from saying is that you're quite well prepared to exercise government to prevent people uh, from getting big. That is, from, to keep everything small. As I, I've, I have given some practical examples. I've also said on that spectrometer between uh, the command economy and, and, and uh, radical anarchist libertarianism, you know, I'm somewhere over here, which is, I suspect where most of the Acton people are. Um, but the Acton people uh, agree that we do have to have the rule of law and that there do have to be laws. And I gave a couple of practical solutions where a private members bill in the UK helped a whole new small business sector get access to a market which it was being basically coerced, coercively uh, excluded from by, by the big four brewers. Um, right. And again, again, the local government law in St. Paul, Minnesota, giving access uh, to small brewers by allowing them to open a tap room. In other words, there are ways, and this is a challenge, but we, we shouldn't say that all government, all government intervention to help small businesses is somehow coercive. Now, I think the challenge is how do we have oh. the rule of law without, without having big government? No, no. What, what you've described in those two instances, and by the way, in the Margaret Thatcher thing in, in particular, isn't government um, extending itself but government retracting itself. Uh, the council flats that Margaret Thatcher made available placed them on the market. They weren't on the market before. They were owned by the government. It didn't place them on the market. It gave preferential rights of, of, of uh, purchase to the tenants, but, but which, it, which, they, which they bought at a, a rate of probably about 35% lower than the market yes, price. But, but they weren't on the market at all. The, the, the market price didn't take into consideration government property, which he did was make government property available on a market. Uh, likewise, these uh, retractions of uh, regulations uh, over beer distribution or the, the gardens that they could open up uh, is the retraction of government, not the extension of government. Uh, I'm talking about instances where you would want to... I mean, give us an instance where you would be well, very yes. happy to... The big, the big four trade. brewers were excluding small breweries from the market. Nothing to do with government. The big based four on competition? Brewers, based upon the fact they owned most of the pubs. Yeah. All right? Uh, they, they bought out uh, most of the other companies and just put the beers out of business. So, I mean, they weren't interested in selling the beers. They just bought everybody up like sharks. Four big brewers owned all the pubs. And so it's impossible for small, bre small brewers to get access to the market. They were being excluded by, the, by big government, by big business. Uh, and that one private member's bill um, allowed through that uh, um, the Gestel bill, but they, 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 every pub could have a Gestel, allowed small brewers access to the market. That's an example of a law being passed, which first of all allows for small businesses and also gives the consumer what they want, which big business was, was preventing them from getting. Right. Uh, how would you get around that? I, I, I don't actually understand the scenario, unless there was an actual law in St. Paul, is that where this was, that made it illegal for people to own, open their own pubs, which would hardly be a free market policy, and you'd have everybody at the Cato Institute would fund that. I don't, so I don't understand the scenario. Well, no, well obviously, uh, I, I, I assume that in, in the United States, as in the UK, that you have to get a license to actually open a, right. a premises that's going to sell <coughs> fermented beverages. Um, so, you know, this is a factory that's producing beer. Are you in favor of that? I'm very much in favor. Well, of what? <laughs> of licensing to be able no, to I'm in favor fermented of beverages. Buy fermented beverages wherever they like at any time. You're, you're laissez-faire on I, that. I, I'm, I'm anarchist in that I direction. I thought you were. I thought you were. <laughs> 
And so did they have a, that, I'm just trying to figure out the, the scenario because it doesn't sound like anything that any free, marker would, free marketer would object to. I mean, it sounds like, if I understand the scenario properly, that's something about the license, licensing arrangement in St. Paul prevented, uh, say, a pub owner from starting a pub and serving any other kind uh, of beer? Is that A, a beer manufacturer, was? a brewer, not a pub owner, right. a manufacturer, a producer of, of, of ale, from being able to actually um, they allow them to turn their factory, if you want to call it that, use that impersonal term, their brewery, much better, brewery is much better than a factory, um, that it allowed them to actually have a tap room, all right? So that, that's, and, and, and by the way, I'm not looking for, uh, Jay, I'm not looking no, for, I'm, I'm, not to looking for you to, I'm not looking for you to object to me. Yeah. I, I'm looking for common ground here. You know, if you, if, if you have no objection to that, then we're, we're on the same page, Deo Gratias. I, th I think there is a lot of common ground here. And, um, and that's what I've been saying about distributivism for a long time. The problem is, uh, or the challenge is, to get to the points where there are disagreements, not where there are agreements. I mean, we, we know that we agree, but there are some niggling little disagreements. Uh, and I, I don't know whether that's the result of misdefinitions or concepts or, as I said at the beginning, aesthetics, that there is something foul and festering about markets and profits and uh, big companies. I understand that, <clears throat> that view from an aesthetic point of view. But from an economic point of view, if those entities are serving people without... Um, utilizing government favors or buying politicians, when, when will you use conversion, uh, uh, co coercion? When, when will you stop somebody from getting too big? it's Jay's turn to speak. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess, and I don't, actually, I don't know Joseph's view on this. This has been my objection, certainly to Belloc. Belloc is quite explicit in his essay on restoration of property. I mean, here's how he put it. He said, the effort at restoring property will certainly fail, will certainly fail, if it is hampered by a superstition against the use of force as the handmaid of justice. All right, and it's clear if you look at his policy proposals, he wanted a series of tax policies and regulations not to allow small businesses to enter the market. That's every free marketer wants that and abhors a regulatory regime that pre prevents that. Belloc wanted to keep businesses from getting above a certain size. If anything like that were implemented, just, just go online tonight and look at what's happening simply as a result of the corporate income tax in the US right now. Now add to that in which companies that get larger, not by getting favor from the government, right, but by getting large because they're good and serve customers, are then punished by the state and punished by the state to keep them small. This is a kind of weird paradox, right, in which we use the coercive power of the state to keep power from getting concentrated in economic actors. It's a very strange thing. I'm not saying that's, that's Joseph's position, that's Bellock's position, and I, I think it's both morally objectionable, I think it also would be a complete disaster if we actually implemented anything like that in the United States. Yeah, first thing I, you know, I, I want to say here is that I've been uh, an adherent of distributism since I was in my teens, as I'm now an old man, that was a long while ago. Uh, so probably 35 years. Um, there were aspects of Belloc's position that, I, that I've, I've never ever adhered to. I'm not interested in adhering to. The key, the key thing about distributism is that private property is a good, and it's private property is a good that as many people as possible should have. Uh, now if Belloc, in his, in his advocacy of certain policies towards the um, towards the achievement of that goal is using what we, we, we might both agree to be bad means, 
then no, let's talk for alternative means. But the thing, the thing that as a distributor that I believe in is that end, that goal. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to advocate in Small is Still Beautiful. That, by the way, is a commercial for the, uh, for the, for the book. Um, you can tell by just looking at me, by the way, that I'm emaciated and my children are even thinner than I am. Um, <laughs> so be good, be good capitalists if that's the, or, or distributors. Whatever side you're on, it doesn't matter. Spend money. Um, prudent, I, I, prudent, prudence and temperance, by the way, are overrated virtues. I, I need to tell you that um, <laughs> I found your argument so persuasive tonight that we are going to cap the sales of your book to only 10 copies. <laughs> we don't want you to get too big. But as we believe in the free market, you're going to buy them at 200 bucks each, obviously. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's... Uh, I can sense that people are wanting to get into this, and so there will be uh, microphones uh, available to you. You're not taking my microphone. Oh, no, you're not. Uh, and uh, we'll... Well, we can share these now. We can just pass them around. So if you'd like to ask a question, just raise your hand. Uh, thank you both. Uh, thank all three of you. It was an interesting debate. I think there was a, a seeds of a real disagreement there when you're going back and forth about whether or not these breweries were uh, able or allowed to uh, offer, offer their beer or not. I think what it was getting at was uh, the presence of monopoly and whether it's ever in the government's interests or for the, for the public good, the public welfare, to make a positive law that would break a monopoly that could have been had because it did at one point have good beer and made great business decisions and bought good bars with good deals, um, but had gotten to a point that had, by economic coercion, which I do think is a thing, uh, prevented the entry of, of other participants in the market. So I think the question again is, is it ever in the interest of the government and when exactly, if you guys could, is it in the interest of them to break up a... Uh, a monopoly, a private monopoly. Is, is that articulating your concern? I think that's, that was pretty good. Yeah, and so I don't, I just don't know the details about the St. Paul situation well enough. It may be licensure or something. And that's usually how these things go, is that you get, I mean, uh, the American Medical Association, and maybe some doctors here, but I'm sorry, that's how it works. You know, you restrict entry. Uh, the, the, uh, the legal profession in the United States restrict entry uh, by licensing. And so this is a, there's a way it's essentially a kind of cartel-like function to present the certain, prevent the normal kind of market uh, processes. So the question is, is there ever a situation which I would think the government ought to break up a monopoly? It would depend on the details. I think most of the cases that you can actually cite end up being really bad examples. Uh, every innovation is initially a monopoly. Peter Thiel has a great book right now called Zero to One where he talks about this. The first time someone invents something, it's a monopoly. So should the government really go in and say, guess what, you're gonna share that with everyone else now. That would be, if it, monopoly, that is that one sort of provider of a service is an intrinsic evil, then that's what we would suggest. So obviously it's not. And so then the question is, under what kinds of scenarios uh, would it be appropriate? I'd say it might be appropriate in cases in which you're dealing with something that is so sort of fundamental to the common good uh, that, it, that, it's, you know, that it's, it's like a, uh, a utility or something like that. But in most cases that you actually study, in fact, Burton uh, uh, Folsom at uh, Hillsdale has a book on this in which he talks about examples in the early 20th century in which attempts antitrust uh, policies uh, designed and advertised to break up monopolies don't actually do that. And in fact, usually 
industrial monopolies that once the government gets worried about it, it's just about the time they're about to break up. So if you remember, I was living in Seattle in the 90s when the federal government suddenly noticed, noticed Microsoft and tormented Microsoft for years, just about the time they lost their dominance in the market. Um, and so I would, I would I honestly think it has to do with the details. What we don't, what we want is, uh, is for the conditions of open competition always to be there. Monopolies by themselves don't prevent that though, because of course, even if you're a monopoly, if you don't provide something well or you try to charge too much, there's substitute goods or somebody can get into the market. What you don't want is the single provider preventing others from being able to enter the market. That's I, how it answers it. Can I, I, can I comment on that first? Sorry. I'd like to give, that is all good and all theoretical, um, but I would like to give the practical examples, go back to what I said. In, in the UK, four mega breweries, not a monopoly, four mega breweries, but between them basically owned 90% of the pubs and were excluding small brewers from the market that the consumers wanted. All right? One private member's bill of parliament gets passed, they have access to the market. Um, that, by the way, leads ultimately to some of those small brewers becoming beer consultants, coming to the United States and helping small microbreweries start over here, and that's the beginning of the microbrewery revolution. So those four men in a pub in Dublin that started the campaign for Real Ale that got that law passed are responsible for this explosion of small microbreweries throughout North America and the UK. It's what four men can do, and it's pure practical distributism. What, law was it? what was the law, Joe? I mean, you're giving examples, none of which... I have to say, I've never, I don't, I haven't, yeah, I heard a law that prevents people, like an actual pub, that, that's not a market policy, that would be using the power of the state to prevent competition, that's a different thing. No, this was using the power of the state to create competition. The four big brewers owned most of the pubs, right? So the point is the four big brewers were excluding small competitors so, so from no the So no pubs, market. it was impossible to open pubs, is that the context? No, the, pub, the pubs impossible. were open, but they were owned by the brewers. But what, so was it impossible for anyone to start a pub, to open a pub? That's the relevant question. <laughs> Can, could I have gone over there or a member that's a, a citizen have done what needed to be done and opened a pub? Or I would say that that would probably be very, very difficult because of licensing laws, but we both agree okay. on the anarchist solution yeah. to that. So. If that's the scenario, then yeah, it's a disaster. So that would be something. And, and that is, notice what it is, is in this case, it's because the licensing laws, they have to be enforced by the state. So in this case, I would see it as Father Sirico does, that it's actually it's a misuse of the coercive power of the state to prevent competition. That's not what the state ought to do. If someone happens to be a unique provider of a good or service, uh, and they're providing it and people are buying it and it's valuable and they're not preventing anyone from entering the market. I don't think that's intrinsically bad. I don't think the state should then go in and decide, okay, we're going to sort of break up the company. Harry, would you... Yes. Oh, well, I, I had a question a little bit uh, different than this. Okay, but <clears throat> distributism as a philosophy really took its root in England. It's, it's not in the United States. It's not in the other cl classical traditions. And the, the thing I wanted to ask you, Dr. Pierce, is what extent you think this had to do with Belloc and Chesterton seeing the long-term results of the theft of church property by Henry VIII, then the establishment of the Bank of England, which then was selling bonds in which they, uh, to finance their wars, okay, and then um, the whole system of the aristocracy, which we never had in America, was this, this cozy relationship that when Belloc talks about capitalism, he wasn't really talking about a free market like we have in America, but he was talking about this British system, which was the theft of church property, which actually, in a way, Margaret Thatcher reversed by giving the property back 
that Henry VIII stole. Okay, then the Bank of England, and um, there, if you take a look at their operations of financing the wars, what they would do is sell the bonds and tax the people to pay for these blasted wars. And then you had um, um, Disraeli writing in Sybil saying what destroyed England was French wars, Dutch finance, and Venetian politics. And I'm wondering to what extent was Belloc and Chesterton looking at this thing in England, which does really not apply to the United States, and that's where distributism, in a sense, I won't say economic, determined it, but it certainly influenced it. And I've always wanted to ask a distributist that question. I came here tonight to ask you that question. <laughs> well, um, I'd, like to, I'd like to be able to say that's true. Um, Belloc, of course, was an historian, and he did write a history of England, which basically took uh, the same... Um, critique you just uh, outlined. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, that the same people that deposed the last King of England, last Catholic King of England, King James II, were the same people that established the Bank of England. Um, but uh, we, we, we won't go there now, because the point is, right, although, although Belloc, although Belloc um, has that critique of English history, no, I think distributism came from two sources. But it was Belloc being very influenced by the... Um, by, John, uh, by Cardinal uh, Manning, um, and also by the um, encyclical of Pope Leo XIII, Verum Novarum. So distributism, the idea of, uh, of the restoration of, of, of private property uh, came from those two sources. And it's said, I don't know how true it is, that Manning was an influence upon Leo XIII in that encyclical, but certainly those two were the, Belloc's main intellectual Roots for, for what became known as distributism. And Chesterton is really just a disciple of Belloc in that. I have a question about um, something that I've, I've seen with my eyes. A few years ago, I, was, I lived in Italy, and at that time, um, online booksellers um, came, came about, and um, they were, for example, they were uh, able to sell books at a much lower price than ordinary traditional booksellers. Um, and um, the corporation of booksellers, they, they asked the government to introduce a law that limited the discount on books to 30% or 20%, something like that, obviously to, uh, to, to limit those discounts and to, to limit competition at that point. And um, the result of that wasn't that these, um, for example, small um, owners, small booksellers, um, they didn't sell more because people didn't, I myself, didn't buy more because there weren't the same big discounts as before on online. And uh, so that, that was, it. people weren't buying more. Those small booksellers, uh, slower, um, closed anyway, and um, so my question is: Is that by by distributist standard or by distributist um, concerns, the the ownership uh, of those those people, would that justify such a policy to introduce such such laws? Can we answer that? For Mr. Pierce, I have that, that, but yeah. I would like also to hear on the other side what would be the pros and cons of this. Um, yeah, let me, this is working, can you hear it? Okay, let me become very controversial then now. Um, because I would uh, answer that question by deflecting it. 
not, not avoiding it. I would argue, when we're talking about how uh, Jay was talking about he's against uh, globalism uh, in the crony capitalist sense, but not against globalization. I would argue that we are committing a very, very dangerous experiment here. Uh, old wives' tales. You know, I'll be accused of being a medievalist because I'm quoting an old wives' tale now. Um, but an old wives' tale uh, is that you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, and you certainly don't put all your eggs in somebody else's basket. That's just silly. Uh, and what we've, what we've done with the whole manufacturing base of the, of the United States is to basically put our manufacturing into China, a communist country which has a one-child policy, um, if we need reminding of that. If there is a significant, serious breakdown in uh, global stability that's caused by politics or economics or both, or other reasons maybe we could, we could mention, we are going to be in a very, very bad, dangerous position here. So the whole idea of you know, uh, having bigger and bigger entities um, that in different parts of the world that are, create, that are supplying everything for us, I think, is very myopic. It's going down a path that we have no experience in history from in blind faith that somehow everything will work out okay. Um, and I think that's scary, quite frankly. But Joseph, that's not one basket. The competitive power of China right now to produce is not one basket. It may be happening in one country. But it's not one basket. What, what, what I said, Father, if, if, if something prevented uh, the easy movement of those manufactured goods from one side of the world to the other, so it become, became uneconomic for whatever reason, we would be in and big what, trouble because we have exported our whole manufacturing base. But what, that's called competition. That, that opens I don't up worship competition, Father. I, you no, know, I, I, worship, I worship wisdom. I, yes. <laughs> I hope you worship God. <laughs> But, That's the uh, source of all wisdom. Yes, yes. As the source. I don't think God's the source of all competition. Is there, is there, is there, do you think the, the, the Holy Trinity is in competition? I think they're in great... With the devil, yes. It's, <laughs> Stephen. Did you want me also to answer that? I mean, I could say... But, yeah, if I could... Under, I want to understand the scenario. So it was... Um, are these local bookstores in Italy that were using Amazon to fulfill orders and they weren't allowed to, they had to charge above the, whatever, the full discount? No, traditional booksellers advocated for a law that limited online... Oh, to prevent people from, from buying... Yeah, exactly. So that, to basically to limit competition for Amazon. Well, I... Yeah, I mean, you come up with another scenario. So imagine um, my dad had a huge investment in the 70s in 8-track tapes. Um, and most of you don't know what that is. You're too young, right? Thousands of dollars probably worth of 8-track tapes. 8-track tape, tapes and players, entire industry, right? So there were factories and jobs and people making the players and the tapes, right? Uh, well, what happened? Well, 8-track tapes actually were a terrible technology, and they were displaced by cassettes and then very quickly by CDs. So what would have been, you know, if you're thinking, okay, well, we don't want, you know, there are jobs here. This is a company. We don't want them suddenly sort of sucked away by some kind of competition. We'll protect them. Well, what would that mean? So what, we subsidize it, right? And so then people would be making 8-track tape 
that nobody wants, right? There's no dignity in that because the whole dignity of work is that you're providing value for yourself and for others, presumably. And so th those are the kind of basic kind of economic realities. And so I think in general, uh, the movement of text from merely physical and, and, and exclusively physical to digital has been a very good thing for lots of writers. But writers like me that publish with regular publishers don't like all the upstarts that are publishing all this stuff freely, but there's zero marginal cost of production for books now because okay. it's digital, and that's a huge, that's a huge deal. We're going to go to the last Father, question. Can I make just one quick comment on that? I'm okay. sorry, just one quick comment. Just to return to Amazon and the all the eggs in one basket. Let's say that Amazon... I'm sorry, was Amazon the one basket? Well, I'm, I'm talking about one, oh. but in this case, I'm going back to the Amazon being one basket. Should Amazon, once it basically is the one basket, because all the book, small booksellers are out of business, decide that it's not going to sell uh, books that are um, uh, homophobic or traditional Catholic teaching on, on moral issues, um, uh, we're in big trouble again because everybody buys everything from Amazon. There's also Barnes and Noble. Or to mention Ignatius Press. Uh, uh, Steve. Thank you all three for uh, your remarks. I want to ask a question about the potential unintended consequences of pursuing an economic philosophy of smallness. And it, in addition to what Dr. Richards remarked about the potential risks of capital flight, it strikes me that there's a number of uh, goods and services that are quite beneficial to humanity which exist in industries that are characterized by very high fixed costs of entry. And so I'm wondering whether or not you would make exceptions to this idea of smallness um, for those uh, goods and services which are necessary to take advantage of things like economies of scale. So you're thinking of things like airplanes or... Sure, or know, perhaps uh, research and development in right. high-tech uh, medical devices. And or, so, Steve? Yeah, and so you, this exception, I don't think that there's any intrinsic value to smallness, mediumness, or largeness, so this would be a question right. for Joe. Steve, um, thank you because you give me another excuse to plug my book. There's a chapter in my book called Smallness Within Bigness, and I'm following E.F. Schumacher that says, of course, some companies have to be large because economies of scales are essential. And in those companies, we should look for the human scale within it. And the analogy that uh, the Schumacher uses is that as a company gets bigger, the CEO is like a juggler, and he has to juggle more and more balls, and that becomes very, very inefficient. Um, so the analogy he uses is that we should have this smallness within business with quasi-firms within the bigger company where the CEO is like someone who holds a bunch of balloons that are all actually efficient in their own right. All he has to do is make sure they're all coordinating towards the common good of the company. So no, of course, where, where economies of scale are essential, we have to find ways of bringing the human scale within those bigger companies. You, you don't mean like Amazon? I have no idea what Amazon does. but yeah, uh, That's exactly Amazon. That was just a description of Amazon. There's not one basket. That, that's well, the whole. Yeah, the, the other thing to remember is that we live in an information economy in which uh, there, it, it's not a simple linear scale in which economy of scale just goes like this. If you read Clayton Christensen's recent book, The Innovator's Solution, not The Dilemma, The Solution, they've studied uh, it, uh, what they call disruptive innovations uh, in his research, and he noticed that virtually no very large, undiverse companies ever 
innovate disruptively. They don't do it. It's hugely disadvantageous for all the obvious reasons. It's like the Department of Labor. You just don't get any innovation. And they get, and so the reality is you imagine that companies get big, bigger and bigger and bigger, and then they sort of wipe out all their competition. What they do is they get slow and sluggish like a beluga whale, and innovators destroy them. And that's it. Just, just look at the Fortune 500 companies and, and CEOs, and you'll see it's a, a lot of companies that didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago, and there's a lot that did exist 20 years ago, they're gone. That's the kind of reality of an information economy. We, I know, <laughs> we want to go on all night, and, and we're going to, but in little baskets. Um, and little glasses. And so, little glasses. Uh, uh, no, big glasses. Big glasses. <laughs> I like that. Small's not always we, 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 <laughs> There you go. <laughs> we were to dinner. <laughs> so that's why. Um, we're going to give you an opportunity now to close with a uh, five-minute um, Conclusions. So, Joe, we'll start with you. Jay, we'll go to you. Podium or here? Where, whichever you prefer. Yeah. Well, I'll stay here then. Yeah. Um, okay, I suppose that the key thing that uh, I want to, to first to take from this, what I hope, what I've always hoped, uh, which is why I'm very grateful for the invitation, uh, is for those who call themselves distributors and those who call themselves free market people uh, to start talking, to stop throwing stones at each other and to look for that ground which is common. And I think there's lots of it. And as Father said, it really the ground that's not common is maybe more interesting, particularly in a debate. Um, and of course, we do have to be uh, very candid about where we differ. And I think we have been tonight. Um, but I, I think, though, I, I think of the analogy of World War I. You know, the English and the French have a long history of being enemies. Um, but when we were side by side in the trenches, you don't shoot each other in the back. And I think that the situation we are now as, 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 as Catholics and as Christians, uh, as we're living in a, a secular fundamentalist culture, regardless of how we see uh, the economy and politics, and I think we have to stand shoulder to shoulder uh, in the trenches against the common enemy. So, uh, by all means, let's agree to differ, but let's also make sure that we know that we're allies. I don't actually want to top that. I wish you had gone last, because exactly my feeling I've thought for a long time um, is that I, I think that Christian theology and Christian history, and as a Catholic, I will say uh, Catholic social teaching is a huge and untapped treasure trove for these issues. Um, the economic discipline as an academic discipline has yet to begin to sort of uh, account for it. And so I think any kind of discussion like this that can further that, it can further the integration of really careful economic understanding and investigation with a proper theology and anthropology, I think is going to be a very good thing. I'll just close with a, a quote from Joseph Ratzinger before he was, uh, was Pope. In fact, this is from the 1980s. This is, this is how he described this connection between uh, uh, economics and morality. He said, a morality that believes itself able to dispense with the technical knowledge of economic laws is not morality, but moralism. As such, it is the antithesis of morality. A scientific approach that believes itself capable of managing without an ethos misunderstands the reality of man. Therefore, it is not scientific. Today, we need a maximum of specialized economic understanding, but also a maximum of ethos so that that specialized economic understanding 
may enter the service of the right goals. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.